Well, if you've been hanging out with us at all this year, then you already know what we're doing. We are studying as a church together through the book of 1 Samuel, and then we'll go into 2 Samuel. But we're looking at this Samuel narrative, and you know as well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, that two weeks ago we were introduced to a very, very significant character. His name is David, and I told you two weeks ago that he really may be, at least humanly speaking, the most significant character in the entire Samuel narrative, and there's a very simple explanation for that. The reason is because David, more than anyone else, more than any other character in either or both of these books, gives to us a picture of Jesus, and what we've been pounding home all year long is that Jesus is the king that all of us really need. And so two weeks ago, we were introduced to David, and we've spent really a lot of the last couple of weeks looking at all the many striking parallels between the life of David and the life of Jesus. And so we've been saying, you know, David was this. Well, you know what? Jesus was that. Hmm, interesting. Well, David said this, and Jesus said this, and David experienced this, and Jesus experienced this, and David defeated this, which was symbolic of something far greater, that the far greater David defeated for me and for you. And so we've been looking at all of these different parallels, you know, and I've had people coming to me and going, wow, I've never seen that before. And I've studied these stories like David and Goliath since I was like three. So it's fun, but we're not doing it because it's fun. It's not just informational. It's not just for fascination. I hope it's kind of fascinating though. I'm not going to lie. We're doing it for transformation, and here's how transformation comes. It comes when we really and truly see Jesus. What do we learn in the New Testament? Fast forward a bit. We're told that in the end, we will be like Him, for we will, what? See Him as He is, and we long to see Him as He is now. And how do we do that? in his word. And so whether we're in the New Testament or whether we're in the Old Testament, it doesn't really matter. There is one character in the Bible, and he is the one that we're after and looking for at all times. And David is the clear Christ figure in this part of the Samuel narrative, and that is very significant for us today. And here's why. Because the story that we're going to pick up today, okay, the characters in this story that we'll look at, their hearts are revealed. And here's how. By how they respond to the clear Christ figure who is David. And the point is that my heart and your heart too is revealed. And not by how we respond to David, but by how we respond in our stories to Christ himself. And here's what it comes down to, both for those guys and that story and you and I and our stories. Here's what love in our hearts looks like in our lives. It looks like an ever-increasing, ever-growing, albeit I get it imperfect, but, but getting better and better willingness to place the advantage of, the exaltation of, the interests of, and the kingdom of, well, David in their case, but in ours, Jesus above our own. It's us looking at the greatness of Christ and going, you know, um, it really doesn't make much sense for me to keep this to myself. In light of your greatness, Lord, you know, here, just, just take it. And here's what the author of this story is going to be doing for us today. He's going to come to us with two different characters, one who gets it and one who doesn't. So in Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel, please don't forget that, the son, the oldest son of the reigning king of Israel, who is Saul, we'll get to him in a second, Jonathan, as we'll see, gets this. He sees in David one who is even greater than himself. And he gives everything to him, joyfully, willingly, voluntarily. 
okay, so he's going to come to us with Jonathan, but he's also going to come to us with Jonathan's father, Saul, the reigning king of Israel. And he, uh, he fears the greatness of Jesus. He does not get it, or of David. He does not get it. His response is very different. And really what the author is going to be doing in the story is he's giving us Jonathan, he's giving us Saul, and he's going, okay, listen, not relative to David, but relative to Jesus, who are you? Which one do you look more like? Is it Jonathan? Is it Saul? What's the deal? Because again, loving here, out here, looks like placing the advantage of, the exaltation of, the interests of, and the kingdom of Jesus above that of our own. And I think in the end that when you really consider who Jesus is and and what it is that Jesus really has done, you know, you kind of got to look at it. And if the Spirit uses that to give you that glimpse of Christ and you see his greatness, you kind of go, yep, it makes perfect sense. So we pick up our study today, 1 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 1, where we read this. We read that as soon as David had finished killing Goliath, the great Philistine giant, and thus single-handedly delivering all of his people from slavery to the Philistines, and we looked at that in chapter 17, that was last week, and then also after David had finished speaking to Saul, the reigning king of Israel, just after that battle, just after that victory, the soul of Jonathan, we're watching him, again, the oldest son of Saul, the crown prince of Israel, the hereditary heir to the throne was knit to the soul of the shepherd boy giant killer named David. And Jonathan loved David, it says, as his own soul, meaning as someone in whom he found that looks just like himself. A second self, a mirror reflection in some sense. And I mean, if you think about it, that makes perfect sense because if you've been hanging with us in this study, well, you realize, you know, before we started hearing about the exploits and the courage and the amazing faith-filled things that David does, who was the guy that was doing all that? That would be Jonathan. Jonathan was a guy taking on the Philistines. Okay, listen, all by himself, amazing, miraculous, faith-filled deliverer of Israel. He was the guy everyone was championing. He was the guy everyone was celebrating. He was the man, Jonathan. And then David bursts upon the scene. If you're looking for two guys with the same heart for God, the same heart for God's people, the same heart for God's kingdom, you could hardly find two more similar men than Jonathan and David. But you can also hardly find two more natural rivals than Jonathan and David. I mean, if you just think this thing through for a second, David is an even greater threat to the throne for Jonathan than he is for Saul. And I say that because Saul is the reigning king. Look, it's hard to take the kingdom away from the reigning king. It's just, it's really, really difficult to do something like that. But it's less difficult to take the kingdom away from the hereditary heir when the reigning king dies. And the, and the question then before the nation is, well, you know, I mean, should we just give it to this guy? Because, I mean, he's a good dude, but just because he's the oldest son of a king? Or do we recognize that we've got this unbelievable giant killing, anointed by God, incredible leader that God has raised up, and should we give it to him instead? You see? Humanly speaking, no one has greater cause to hate David. No one has greater cause to seek to marginalize and diminish David. No one has greater cause to wish death upon David and even to bring it upon him than does Jonathan. And humanly speaking also, no one loves him more and lifts him higher. This guy, Jonathan, gets it. 
Saul does not. So again, we read that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David in whom he found someone not just like himself, but frankly, even greater than himself. And I say that because, again, rewind to last week. What happens? Here comes Goliath, and he marches across that Elah Valley 40 days in a row before David shows up on day 41. And for 40 straight days, he defies Israel to send out a man, a champion, to fight him. Okay, well, wasn't Jonathan there on day one, two, three, four, 38, 39, 40? Look, he was. Not even Jonathan would face Goliath. It took David on day 41. He sees in David, yes, one like unto himself, but one in whom he recognizes, okay, an even greater commitment to God, an even greater resemblance to the Lord. He realizes, this guy excels me. And he realizes this, mind you, even though David is about 15 years younger than him. This is really something. So the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and so Jonathan loved David as his own soul, but okay, here comes the contrast. Here comes that other guy. Notice what Saul does. We read in Saul, what? It's really kind of a key word. He took, and he didn't just take a little. He took David himself. He took the whole of David that day, and he would not allow him to return to his father's house. Why? Because he sought to use David. He wanted to use David for his own purposes, to his own advantage. He wanted to control him. He wanted to keep him. He wanted to call him up when he might be of use to him. He's not interested in giving anything to David. He's interested in taking everything from David, eventually even David's life. He's not looking to lay himself down in service to David. He's looking to enlist the service of David to his own advantage. Oh, good grief, we're going to have to compare ourselves to these guys here in a minute. All right, so that's all. But notice what Jonathan does. It says, then Jonathan made a covenant with David. He made a formal agreement and bond with this man, David, because he loved him as his own soul. And among other things, by means of this covenant, Jonathan gives to David the kingdom. And here's how we know this, because we see now this transference of clothing. And you're like, really? That's it? So like, if I give somebody my coat, I got to give them my business? No, that's not the way that it would work for you. But throughout the Bible, we see four or five different examples of people who are leaders and they transfer their position from one person to the next person by transferring their clothing. It's symbolic. It's very significant. It says, and Jonathan stripped himself. Remember that. He strips himself. He stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David. And what robe exactly was that? It was the robe of the crown prince of Israel. It was the robe that the crown prince of Israel should wear. He's saying, yeah, this should be yours. And not just the robe. He also gave David his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt, all of which everybody understood to be the belongings of the crown prince of Israel, of the rightful heir to the throne. And so in doing this, what Jonathan is saying symbolically is, I hereby renounce my right to the throne, and here's why. You're greater than me, David, and you know what? I I cannot refuse it of you. Here, though it costs me everything, take it, because it cost him a lot. 
Don't just run by that as you read through a story like this. I mean, stop in the story and think to yourself, wait a minute, okay, let's see. How much wealth do you think this cost Jonathan? How much fame? How much privilege? How much power? How much position? How much prestige? How much service? How much glory? How much of the stuff that we burn our lives chasing after and really value, don't we? Did this cost this man? All right, and then pause and compare yourself to these two guys and go, okay, Saul is a taker. Jonathan is a giver. When I step out of their story and I step into my story, when it comes to Jesus, am I a taker or a giver? What's the answer? That's like low-hanging fruit for a preacher. I just want to let you know that. I mean, if somebody wants to just pitch you a softball and you just want to crush it, there it is, man. Here's the temptation for the pastor guy. The temptation for the pastor guy is now to pull out all of the categories that you already know and just start running through them. All right, well, let's talk about this area of your life. Are you a taker or a giver? What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And it just kind of impressed me this week. I felt like the Lord just said, you know what? Just ask the question and I'll answer it in the hearts of everyone here. They'll know. Just like you, Tom, know. Little of each, maybe, eh? When it comes to Jesus, are you a taker or a giver? Because again, here's what love in here looks like out here. And it's not perfect out here. And it's not full-born fruit out here yet. But it's an ever-growing, it's an ever-increasing willingness to place the advancement of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the kingdom, the interests of Christ above our own. It's a, I see your greatness, Lord, like, here's what I got, you know, just take it. It would be silly for me to hang on to it. And so we read in verse 5, and it's kind of a summary statement. It says, and then David went out and he was successful. See, the hand of the Lord is upon him. He's like Joseph. Whatever he does, he's successful. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, and so that Saul set him then as his general, if you will, over the men of war. Saul is trying to take advantage of this kind of shooting star named David, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. However, as it turns out, and very quickly, it was not good in the sight of Saul. I mean, David wins this great victory. Saul makes this decision. He's thinking, hey, this is awesome. Everybody thinks this is great. And now here they come from the Valley of Elan. What happens? We're told that as David and Saul and the rest of the Israelite soldiers were coming home from the valley of Elah when David returned from striking down the great giant Philistine named Goliath, the women of Israel did what was their custom in that day. They came out of all of the cities of Israel that David and Saul and these soldiers were traveling through on their way home, and they come out singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy with musical instruments, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated, meaning it's antiphonal, you know? So you can imagine them riding through a crowd. And so the women on this side shout something, and the women on this side shout something, and the women on this side shout something. And if you're a guy and they're shouting about you and it's good, I mean, it just doesn't get much better than that. So here comes Saul and he's big and tall, isn't he? He's huge. He's a giant himself. We learned a long time ago that Saul, when he stood amongst the people of Israel, stood head and shoulders Above everyone else, you can imagine him on his big royal steed, riding at the front of the group, taking it in, basking in the glory. He loves this song until they get to the second chorus. 
So they sing, Saul has struck down his thousands. And these guys sing, Saul has struck down his thousands. And Saul's like, right on, you people get me. You know, this is great. Exactly. And then they say, and David is 10,000s. And that wrecks the whole song for him. He's done. That's it. It's over. It says, and Saul was not just angry. He was furious. He was very angry. What a different reaction than Jonathan. What a different heart. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. Yeah. In fact, he said, and he says it in his heart. He says to himself, and here's his own counsel. They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. And so what more can David have from them is this point but the kingdom itself. And so then Saul eyed David murderously, as we then see, from that day on. And I say that because in the very next scene, if you've done your personal worship, you know it. Where do you see Saul? He's sitting in his little throne room and he's sitting there on his throne and he's in a state of madness, is he not? This giant of a man. And David is over in the corner and he's playing his harp trying to soothe Saul who's just out of his mind with rage and with jealousy and so forth. And what does Saul have in his hand? He's fiddling and he's playing with his spear. Now, wait wait a minute, wait a minute. Because this is chapter 18, right? So it's connected to chapter 17. And when you go back into chapter 17 and you read about the great giant Goliath, the one who stood head and shoulders above everyone, what did the narrator spend the most time describing? In terms of his weaponry, it was his spear. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam. The head of the spear, oh man, it's like 15 pounds of iron. Who is Saul? He's the new Goliath. And just like Goliath had sought to pierce David with his spear, what does Saul do? He takes his spear and he hurls it at David, trying to pierce him with it. Actually, then also trying to nail him to his wooden wall. Twice. Well, that doesn't work. So Saul then changes his strategy for trying to get rid of David. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take him out of the generalship because as a part of the generalship of this army, he's, he's commanding from the rear, if you will, and I want him in the front. So I'm going to remove him as my commander over all the armies, and I'm going to put him as commander over a thousand troops, and then I'm going to send him dead center into the battle line. I'm, I want him to be in the heat of the battle because I want him dead. Okay, well, that backfires too. Instead of killing David, David kills the Philistines. And then his legend grows. It's like, this guy, we thought he was great, you know, in battle with Goliath, but my goodness, he's amazing. So then Saul seeks to bring death to David by means of his two daughters. Okay, time out. Now who is he like? Is he not like the evil one himself, the great serpent of old, who sought to bring death to Adam in the garden? How? By means of the woman. This is not a kind commentary on Saul. So he takes his two daughters, rolls them out before David one after the other, offers their hands in marriage to David one after the other, but only on the condition that David go out and do this. You've got to be kidding me. There's no way you can possibly survive this military heroic feat of valor which he then does. He survives, and it totally backfires on Saul. Now David is part of the royal family. 
So now they won't have to choose between his son and some other dude, but his son and his son-in-law married into the family. And man, he's a shooting star and nothing Saul does seems to work well. And so since that backfired, Saul went back to plan A, which is just kill David directly. And so he sent soldiers over to David's house to kill David directly in his own home. But his daughter foils the whole plan, helps David sneak out the window, and he sneaks away and he goes to Samuel. And then she makes up this lie and she saves his life. And Saul discovers that David is hiding out with Samuel and a community of prophets And so he sends his soldiers to kill him there. And this time it is foiled by the Spirit of God himself who comes upon these men and disables them directly. It's really something. So Saul then says, well, I guess I just have to go do this myself. And he takes his big fat spear in his hand and he goes to kill David. And God disables him as well. It's ironic, you know, you you begin this story and it begins with a disrobing, doesn't it? Jonathan voluntarily, Jonathan joyfully, Jonathan in faith, literally taking off all of the vestiges of royalty, everything that at least by hereditary or by heredity he had rightful claim to and laying it at the feet of the one whom he recognizes to be greater than he. But it ends with a disrobing as well. Saul, by the power of the Spirit of God, not only takes off all of his clothing, every stitch, all of his vestiges of royalty. But then he prostrates himself. He lays face down in the dirt for a night and a day, not just before Samuel, but before the one who ran to Samuel for cover, before David himself. And when that dawned on me, like on Friday or something, I thought, you know, it really is true that 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 will be the case for all of us too. I mean, when we get to Philippians 2, Paul tells us something. He says, everyone in heaven, everyone on earth, and everyone under the earth. So he's not leaving anyone out. Dead, alive, everyone. He says, listen, in the final day, let me tell you what's going to happen. Preview. Here we go. You ready? Every knee shall bow, voluntarily or involuntarily, willingly in worship or unwillingly in judgment. And every tongue will confess in joy or in regret that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Almighty. And I I had that thought and then I thought to myself, well, my goodness, in light of the greatness of Christ, like, why wait? Really? Why wait until the end of all things to involuntarily bow your knee to Jesus and judgment, when you can instead look upon him in all of his glory and greatness, recognize who he really is and what he's really done by faith, receive forgiveness and eternal life and his spirit and all of that stuff, and then willingly bow your knee to him and worship now, today, and then tomorrow, and then the next day, and on the final day and then throughout eternity. And I think that when you consider who he really is and what he's really done, you kind of go, well, yeah, that is what he deserves. It really is. 
So anyway, last week was Easter, and one of the Easter traditions that we have at our home is that on Palm Sunday, so the Sunday before Easter, Beth breaks out six candles, and she puts them down the center of our kitchen table where we all eat every night, and then we light all the candles, and we take the Easter story, and little by little, we read it, and so I read a part of it on that first night on Palm Sunday, and then one of the kids blows out a candle, and the next night, we only light five. And then I read another part of the story, and then another kid blows out a candle. And the next night, we only light four, and then three, and then two. You get the idea? Until we get down to Good Friday, the day that commemorates the crucifixion, the suffering, and the death of Christ for our sin. And we read that, and then a kid blows that one out. And then all the candles are out. The light of the world has been extinguished. And they remain out until Easter morning, which I'm told is awesome, but I'm here, so I miss it. Um, No, 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 I don't feel sorry for myself. Um, But on Easter morning, when our kids get up, the candles are burning, the lights are on, and the darkness is gone, and the light of the world is risen. And as part of those readings this year, I read to them just the two or three verse story Where Jesus, on the night that he is betrayed, when Jesus at the Last Supper, if you will, washes the feet of his disciples. And I reminded the kids, as I'm going to remind you now, that you know what? John chapter 13 comes after John 12. It's sort of like, you know, 1 Samuel 18 comes after 17. And again, I say that because they're an organic whole. We've divided them up. They're all connected. They're all integrated. And what happens in John 12 speaks to John 13 and particularly to this little story that's, you know, somewhat obscure. What John tells us in John 12 is that the vision that Isaiah has of Jesus in Isaiah 6 is where he records it, and it occurs 750 years before Jesus is born, okay, is actually a vision of Jesus. And what does he see? Heaven's great king, high and exalted, seated upon the throne, He's saying, heaven's great king, John's telling us, that Isaiah saw is Christ. Before he entered into the world. And there's only one part of Jesus who sits upon heaven's throne in that vision that he describes. And it's not his head or his face or his teeth or his hair or his height or his weight. It's something that we've been talking about in this story. It's his clothing. The only thing he describes are his robes. And in the ancient Near East, the robes of the monarchs spoke to their glory. It spoke of their majesty. It gave testimony to their magnificence. Isaiah sees Christ seated upon the throne of heaven as heaven's great king long before he came into the world for you. And all he can talk about is his glory and greatness and majesty and magnificence. Then we get to John 13. And we get this little story that's not just about a foot washing. It's a retelling of the story of heaven's great king, of who he is and what he's done for you. I'm just going to read it to you, a few verses, and follow the sequence of events. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, that is to say to go back to the throne in heaven that he had inhabited before he left it, to come into this world for you. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And incidentally, what does love in here for Jesus look like out here for Jesus? Looks like the whole of his ministry. 
We read that during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God where he had sat on heaven's throne and that he was going back to God where he would again sit on heaven's throne, what? He rose from the supper just like he rose from heaven's throne. And then what does he do? He lays aside his clothing. He laid aside his outer garments. Even as heaven's great king, Jesus had previously laid aside his glory, his majesty, the magnificence that is his for you. He laid aside his outer garments and then taking a towel, which was the garment of a servant, what does he do? He wraps himself with it. He puts it around his waist, even as in his supernatural conception, he clothes himself in our humanity that he might come into this world to live and to suffer and to die and just personalize it for you. And then he poured water into a basin, which incidentally is a cleansing agent, and that's what he uses it for, and it's emblematic of his blood. Poured out. For me and for you. He's the true David, guys. He's pierced by the soldier's spear. He's nailed to the wood in our place. And with that water that's emblematic of his blood, he began to wash the disciples' heads. No. Okay, their arms? No. I don't know. What? Their back? No. The lowliest, filthiest parts of every single one of them. That is a very comforting thought. He washes the filthiest, lowliest parts of them. He does the job of the lowliest of servants. And with that towel, he wiped them clean, you see? Even as he washes and makes clean the filthiest and lowliest parts of me and of you when we come to him by faith. And then when he was done, what did he do? Well, he put his clothes back on and he sat back down at the table at his rightful place, just like in his resurrection, which we celebrated last week on Easter, and in his ascension thereafter. What did he do? He reclothed himself in his glory and his majesty and magnificence and resumed his rightful place on the throne of heaven where he sits today and from which he will return one day for me and for you, for all of us who like Jonathan recognize His greatness and surrender to Him our sin and then ourselves too. We give Him everything. Those whose love in here shows up out here, not perfectly, thank the Lord, but in an ever-increasing and ever-growing willingness as we ever-increase and grow in our understanding of His beauty and greatness to just kind of place everything, his advancement, his exaltation, his interests, and his kingdom above our own. Because here's the deal. Like when you really see who he is, when you really understand what he's done, you know, you, you want it like Jonathan, you want to go, hey, okay, all right, here's my shirt, you know, here's my shoes, you know, hold your breath. Here, here's my watch, you, you can take that, I've got a wallet here. You know what, here's my marriage. You, you can just, whatever you can do with that, that would be awesome. Here are my kids, pause. Is he great enough to receive your kids? Is he? What if he wants to send them to like Africa or something? Here is my, or are my kids? 
Here's my business. Here's my reputation. Here are my gifts and talents and time, which is life. Lord, in light of your greatness, how great you are and how great I'm not, my goodness, it'd be ruinous not to give these things to you. It'd be a waste. So let me ask you, when it comes to Jesus, take or giver, Jonathan, Saul. And by the way, my prayer is that you're a little of both, at least in this one sense, that you will take from Jesus the salvation that he lived and suffered and died and shed his own blood to freely give to you. <laughs> take it. It's a good deal. but then that you'll give him your life in return. And the last question is, well, then why wait to do so? I mean, why would you wait to involuntarily bow your knee to Jesus in judgment in the end when you can take the few loaves and fish that he's given you in this life and say, Lord, you know, I mean, it's, it's all I got. But it's best served in service to you. So here, take it. You are alone worthy of it. You can joyfully and voluntarily bow your knee to Him now. So take or give her, and don't wait, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for the privilege uh, of being able to gather in worship um, to a Jesus who is so amazingly great. God, we pray that your spirit would operate in such a way that you would open our eyes which are otherwise blind, that you would unstop our ears to the truth of his gospel, that you would make soft our hearts, Lord. Operate upon them. Help us to recognize and to receive and, God, to revel in the greatness of our Lord. Let us find life and forgiveness in his blood. Let us find purpose and meaning in surrendering our lives to Him and learning to walk in His Spirit in accordance with His Word in community with His people. Do these things, God, we pray for Your great glory and for the good of Your people. In Christ's name, amen.